Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 2 through verse 20. Uh, we were in, in the first couple verses last week. We're going to read the rest of the passage from chapter 2 this morning. Hear God's word. As I read out loud, read along in your own Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it should be up on the screen for you. Hear the word of God. And the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. In other words, it in large enough print that people can read it while they're running. Uh, and for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And that's what we addressed last week. And then beginning in verse four. Behold, his soul is puffed up. So this is the vision. It is not upright with him, within him, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all as his own all peoples. Shall not the, all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Another woe, verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Verse 12, another woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Another woe, 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out, wrath, pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And lastly, a fifth woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And all God's people say, praise be to the God. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I'm a sucker for World War II stories. And uh, there's a story I ran across, actually a movie first, about a girl named Sophie Scholl. And then I did more research on her. Sophie Scholl was a young girl who grew up in Germany uh, during uh, Nazi, the, the era of Nazi Germany in the 30s into the 40s. And she was a small group of Germans who not only did they not join the Nazi party, but in the face of Nazi oppression, they resisted from within their own country. She joined because as a Christian, 
She knew she could not follow Jesus and love her neighbor if she did nothing while her government brutally destroyed people made in the image of God. And so she resisted. And what would you, what you would expect to happen to Sophie Scholl during that time did happen. She was captured. She and her brothers, a brother and her friends were charged with high treason. And the courts put on a show trial. It was the complete and utter sham of a trial. In fact, her father was so distressed by the injustice of the trial and all the lies that they spoke against her that he would stand outside the courtroom with his own form of courage, screaming out, one day a justice of another character entirely will come because this, this is not justice. Well, the sentence of death was laid down upon Sophie Scholl. She was sentenced to death. She went to sit with her mom and dad for a few brief moments and they sat. And in fact, the court documents, they had people who were in the room with her when she was meeting her last meeting with her parents and her parents were fighting back tears and they, Sophie says, do not worry for one day we will see each other again in eternity. And her mother reached across the table and took her hand and she said, Sophie, as you go to your death, remember Jesus. And Sophie squeezed, squeezed back and she said, ah, yes, but you must remember him as well. And they took her by the arm and they led her by the hall, down the hall and they put her head in the guillotine. She was 21 years old. Now, she was a woman of incredible courage. This is actually a picture that was taken right before her execution. She was a human who lived and died with incredible faith, a faith not in what that day had, but in another day to come, a day when justice would arrive. And that is the same justice that Habakkuk chapter two is speaking of. Just to give you some review, the prophet Habakkuk has been crying out in the first part of chapter one saying, oh my goodness, the people of God are really bad. We deserve God's justice. We deserve God's wrath. And then he, he's calling out and crying out for God to come do something to fix God's people. And God's response to Habakkuk is not quite what Habakkuk really wanted. He said, okay, I'm gonna bring justice in the form of the Babylonians. They're gonna come in. They're gonna decimate the people of Judah. They're gonna take you off into exile. They're gonna bring my wrath to bear upon my own people. And then Habakkuk lets forth another cry. He says, wait a second. That doesn't sound fair to have the even more evil people punishing those who are more righteous. Yes, I know that Israel is not very righteous. I know we have been very unfaithful, but compared to the Babylonians, my goodness, we are none compared to them. And God, and then you see the verse, first part of chapter two, he then sits down and he waits for God's answer to his cry. And this, what we read this morning is God's answer that he responds to Habakkuk and says, yes, my justice and my judgment will come. It may be slower than you want. It may come after a season and a lifetime of great suffering and sorrow, but my justice is coming. And therefore, what I want you to see here, the key verse there at the beginning is, he, he uh, compares the arrogant man in verse four it says, the arrogant man in verse four, but the man who lives is the one who will live by faith. And what is he putting his faith in? He's putting his faith in the vision that God is just about to give Habakkuk. In other words, what we have today is the good news of God's judgment. The good news of God's judgment. The judgment of God is not something that we normally like to think of as being very good news. 
When we hear about the judgment of God, we think of uh, that's something that we really don't want to talk about. We would, uh, would rather actually kind of leave that out of the whole gospel story if we could. But judgment is indeed good news. It's as much a part of the gospel and very much needed part of the gospel. It is good news for the people of God who live in a world that is full of violence and abuse. And it is the good news, it is this good news that sustains us for a life of ministry and courage like Sophie Skoll when we live in the face of injustice. And so where do we see? We see the vision of God's judgment. The vision of God's judgment is good news for three reasons this morning, for three reasons. And the first is this, and that is the justice in God's judgment. It is a just judgment. It is right. Now the structure here, and I tried to point it out as I went through and read that long passage, is that he puts out, in the vision, God provides five woes in verses 6 through 20. Five woes for the people of Babylon. I'm just going to give them a a title for each of these sections, 6 through 8. It would say, woe because of their theft. Second is, woe because of their oppression. In other words, it says that they, they, they seek out their own security by oppressing other people's. Third woe is simply violence against others. Fourth, I've simply called rape. It is the rape of image bearers and it is the rape of Lebanon, of God's creation. In verse 17, we see that. And then in verse, in the fifth woe is idolatry. Idolatry, the worship of stone and wood idols, things that cannot speak, things simply covered in gold and silver. These are the things that the people of Babylon worshiped and God says, woe upon you. And there is judgment coming. That word woe, we don't really use that. That seems like an old King James kind of word, doesn't it? Woe, woe. Although as a parent, wouldn't you wanna say that every once in a while to your kid? Woe there. That's how we talk to horses, uh, but... What about to our kids and to those who deserve judgment? It's an expression of God's judgment. It always comes with curses. The Bible is full of a lot of blessings, but yes, there's also curses there as well. Woe is a declaration that something something has gone wrong, and we must not lose the fact that there is goodness. There is goodness in God's declaration of woe over this world, his declaration of judgment. There was an ethics professor a number of years ago who decided to do a um, ethics. You guys remember ethics? We could use some of that these days, couldn't we? Some understanding of what ethics are. He was trying to, to he was doing an exercise with the students and so he, he simply put a picture up on, on a PowerPoint of a woman named Aisha. And it was a, from the Time Magazine in 2010. And he describes uh, this woman and her, her, her experience. Aisha was an Afghani teenager um, who was uh, given away to a Taliban fighter and was, found herself in an extremely abusive marriage. He would uh, abuse her often, and then he had such little uh, care for her and such disdain for her that he kept her in uh, the pen with the goats. That's where she was forced to live. And when she could not endure the abuse any longer, she ran away and sought to flee from her abusive husband and ran back to her family who you would have thought would have welcomed her once they heard about that abuse, but their response was to take her and abuse her even more. They hacked off her nose, they lopped off her ears, and they left her for dead in the mountains of Afghanistan, where she was found by U.S. military personnel and taken to a hospital run by an aid organization. Now, the professor showed them this picture and told the story of Aisha, and he thought his students would have a clear ethical reaction to this. 
that they would make a clear moral judgment as to what was done to her, that they would look at it and they would go, that is wrong and that is awful and someone needs to pay. But you know what they said? They said, well, we might not like it here in our culture, but if it's okay over there, it's just wrong for us to judge other cultures. And it's before this kind of behavior that we long for a God who looks at this world and he says, woe to you, who have formed not just relationships, but whole cultures that abuse my image bearers. They are unwilling, if you are unwilling to say, whoa, that is wrong and that is evil and the judgment of God is coming upon it, then it's probably woe upon you as well. Deep down, we know and we actually long for God's description and declaration of woe over the world. Habakkuk sees injustice and violence all around and God's response is not, well, you know, there's gray areas. I mean, Israel is evil too, right? Which sounds rather apropos, but I'm talking about Habakkuk chapter one and two. That, oh, look at these awful things that have happened. But God doesn't say, oh, there's gray area here. No, he says, what Babylon is gonna do to my people, I'm gonna bring my judgment down upon them. And understand that God is not making a declaration merely that something is wrong. He's declaring not only is it wrong, but my condemnation, my punishment is coming down upon this action and upon these people. And real briefly, I want you to see that God's judgment here is not, it's fitting. It's fitting and right. His fit, God's judgment, whenever we see it, it is right and is good. It is not wrong. It is a fitting. It is a, it is a punishment that fits the crimes. Let's just walk through just a few of these descriptions we see of God's judgment upon um, the people of Babylon. He says in verse eight, seven and eight, will not debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations and all the remnant of the people shall then therefore plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. In other words, he uses the language of debt. That all of this evil that Babylon is putting down upon others, it is like they're taking out a debt from those people. And those people are going to rise up eventually and saying, okay, there's a, there's a bill to pay. We will, not, we will not sit under your oppression forever. In verse 8, it says, those who have pillaged will, be, will pillage. In other words, the nations of the earth will only take this from so long from you, Babylon, before they rise up and they do these to you the very same things that you did for them. It's an eye for an eye. The punishment fixed the crime. What goes around comes around. And we are familiar with this principle in the Bible. We see it there. We also see it in much of life, don't we? You know, even our fairy tales, the old school ones, they, they, they like to get this down, this whole idea of an eye for an eye. And what goes around comes around. You guys may be familiar with the, the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. They are very grim. I mean, they're not necessarily something you want to be telling your children at bedtime. But well, one of them, one of the more famous one is about a, a father who comes to uh, live with his son and his daughter-in-law. And, and he, he, he's a man who's kind of dementia rattled and his hands shake as he eats and he can't steady his cup. And so he begins to make messes at the table and he drops the nice silverware and the nice nice bowls and cups. And so the daughter-in-law says, oh, enough. I'm gonna give you this some cheap stuff. And so he has to kind of start eating out of just kind of earthenware bowls. And then, and then even his hands begin to shake and he continues to drop his bowls and his cups and, and make messes. And one day he drops his cup and he cracks on the floor and makes a huge mess on the floor. And she in a rage says, that's it. You're gonna have to eat in the corner. 
and you have to eat like an animal. If you're gonna live and act like an animal, you're gonna have to eat like an animal. And they stick him in the corner of the room and he eats out of an animal trough. Well, a couple days later, they see their little kid and he's kind of fashioning something with a piece of wood. And they ask him, oh, their little son, he's about four years old, and he's fashioning this kind of, what looks like this kind of serving dish. And they ask him, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm preparing, I'm preparing your, your food bowls for when you come to live with me and you're gonna get to eat like grandpa. This is the kind of justice that God is talking about here. That those who have had injustice done to them, they will rise up. They will rise up and do justice. They will rise up. The pillagers will become those who pillage. And that seems to make sense to us. But we must also see that God's judgment is not just fitting in that the punishment fit the crime, but we must also see that God's judgment is ferocious and it is furious, and it ought to be. It ought to be. Look at just the, the level and degree of the evil that is described here in some of these verses. For example, in verse 15, Habakkuk chapter two, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. What we have here is a rated R scene in, in um, um, more gentle language. It is Babylon's cruelty under the figure of, of, of making a nation or a people inebriated. And then Babylon is pictured as someone who will gawk at them, strip them down, and perform sexual uh, crimes against them. That's the image that is being given here. In verse 15 and 16, it's saying that Babylon demeans people and they get a fiendish delight out of doing so. They don't just do evil on accident, they love their evil. You know, this is, there's places in this world we see this. We can look at some of the great dictators, right? Stalin used to say this. He, had a, he was quoted by one of his colleagues as saying, to choose the victim, to prepare the blow with care, to slake an implacable vengeance, and then to go to bed. There is nothing sweeter in the world. That is a man who gloried in his evil. There are those that want to dominate and hurt others simply for the pure joy of bringing pain. Proverbs talks about these people. Chuck Colson, his book, Against the Night talks about not simply whole people groups and nations doing this, but individuals. There, in the early 80s, there was a French-Canadian, um, what do we call, flight steward, flight attendant. I don't know what we're supposed to call uh, flight attendants anymore. I don't know. Someone, someone correct me after the service. But his, his name, was, I believe, was Dugas. And he was known to be patient zero of the AIDS virus in North America that he was quoted as saying late in his life that he had slept with something like 2,500 people in his lifetime. And many of those were after he found out he had AIDS and continued to expose other people. And not only that, but he was known for after having an sexual encounter with people would look at them and say what they was understood then, he said, I have the gay cancer and he would begin laughing at them. In other words, he would joy in his sexual promiscuity, but then also in the fact that he was bringing death and destruction wherever he went. That is the sadisticness of the Babylonian cruelty. And it is that kind of evil that re requires a response from God that is vengeful, that is ferocious, and that is furious. You look at God's response in verse 16. Well, you will have shit your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself, he says to Babylon, and show your uncircumcision. Now that's a, an image that's kind of bizarre to us. What he's saying is this, show the most unclean parts of who you are. 
The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. In other words, saying my cup, my cup of wrath is gonna come upon you. That what you thought gave you glory and power and might, I'll make you drink of shame. And understand that this is not just Old Testament stuff. I must remind us of this. That the God of vengeance and judgment is there in the New Testament as well. You don't have to look very far in the book of Revelation, but it's in other places as well. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 through 8, I'm going to begin in verse 4, but I'll pick up on the screen at verse 5. It says this, Therefore we ourselves boast about you, this is Paul speaking, we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're doing, enduring. So he's speaking to a church, it's an enduring horrific persecution. Then verse five, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is consoling a persecuted church and he's saying this is part of the hope. This is part of the good news that when you live in an unjust world and when you're under persecution and affliction, the ferocious and the furious wrath of God is indeed good news. It is good news. Now understand this about the justice and the vengeance and the retribution of God. His vengeance is not poured out and his justice is not poured out for its own sake. It has a greater purpose. His justice and pouring it out when he comes as king over the earth is to manifest the beauty of his character, in other words, to manifest his glory. And that is the second thing I want you to see about the good news. The vision tells us that the, is the glory of, from God's judgment or the glory of God's judgment. The very smack dab middle point of this passage is verse 14. That he tells us that the terminus and the ultimate goal of God's justice is not for justice just itself, but is the awesome glory of God that everyone would know that God is good, that God is glorious, that God is awesome, and to bring us to a place we see in verse 20 of silent awe and worship. Habakkuk 2 verse 14 is where we will see the first one. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, why is evil ultimately frustrated and put down? It is this, it is because the ultimate goal of history is that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be seen in all of his glory. The glory of God, if, you're, if it's kind of, can be an esoteric kind of concept for us, but the glory of God, we could say, is the manifestation of his characteristics, of his attributes. The old Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way, that his glory is the sparkling of his deity. It is the manifestation of his deity. It is the few feel the warmth of the sun of his glory. And all of human history from beginning to end is about this. Is about this. This is why he created you and made you. Let me just give you a series of passages that show this. Psalm 19.1, the heavens, all creation declares the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Isaiah 43 
I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and I made. Why did God make you? For him, for his glory. In Psalm 86, verse 9, it says this, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That is the vision of heaven. That the vision of heaven and the great joy of the end of all things is that God gets glory. And one of the great and glorious characteristics of our God is that he is a just God. That he is a just God. And the story that the Bible paints is that there is a king who is bringing his kingdom upon this earth. And when he brings his kingdom in fullness, he will make everything that is wrong right. He'll make everything that is wrong right. At that point, all injustice will go away. And one day there will be no more enmity and no more mistreatment and no more abuse of women and no more abuse of other ethnicities. There will be no more of this trauma and this war that is constant, that little children will be safe in their mother's wombs because every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the end of history. The terminus of history is not you. The terminus of history is him. And then Habakkuk 20, 2 verse 20, ends it this way. At the end of, the, end of, the, of all things, but to the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. At the very end of all of those woes and all of that judgment, when God is done with these things, all the earth will, re, will go silence, silence. The picture here is God in his temple. That means he's sitting on his throne and he's sitting in the place where all people were to gather to worship him. Before such glory and before such justice and wrath, the earth sits silent. That's the end. You see, all of human history can almost be pictured like this. Do you, this is dating me. Do you remember how the second Matrix movie began? that it was just kind of this seemingly underground, debauched rave party. That's human history. In which in the dark, all forms of evil and activity and awfulness are happening in the corners of the place. And what's gonna happen when he comes back is it's gonna come to a close like that. And the rave party will be over. And we'll sit silent before him. This is the hush of all the earth sitting before the judgment seat of God. Well, I thought this was good news, Pastor. This sounds rather rough. Yeah, it is good news. Did you see who this is for? Where we began, verse four, behold, his soul, the arrogant man, is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. It's good news for the righteous. Well, who's righteous? Uh Uh-oh. I'm not. I don't think you are either. You see, things get serious when we see that we too deserve this, this wrath, this justice. See, the evil that is manifested in this world cuts right through the human heart. Babylon resides in us. 
After King James came to power, there were those who, uh, there was a lot of King Jameses, so just guess which one. And, and so when King James comes back to power in England, there are all these who were like, rose up and were like, I don't want King James. And so these kind of rebels in England that were fighting against this, this new power, and um, a bunch of them were, fought, were caught and they were brought before these judges um, as part of a treason trial. And one of the judges was a guy named Judge George Jeffries, which sounds like something from like the 1920s, not something from like, uh, you know, uh, the 1600s. But he, Judge George Jeffries was one of the judges who was carrying out the sentence. And he, he walked up to one of these, these rebels, these people that he viewed as being treasonous. And he took his cane and he stuck his cane up and he poked the guy right in the chest with his cane. And he said these words, there is a rogue at the end of my cane. Well, the rebel had nothing to lose and was feeling rather cheeky. And so he responded this way, at which end, my Lord? (laughs) Verses six through 20 is a vision of God's wrath coming. But whenever we read that, and we think that we're on one end, poking it into the chest of the evil of this world, God may whisper within our ears and remind us At which end? Who is deserving justice here? When you see the judgment of God spelled out in scripture as sinners in our own right, we must realize that we too should be at the other end of the cane of God's judgment. Cruelty and arrogance is not the unique property of Babylon or Hamas or whatever political party you don't like. The evil of man and of Babylon flows straight through the human heart. The cruelty that exists in our hearts is seen right there. And here's the point. Babylon is gonna face judgment, but so will you. And this means this, that if there is any hope, if there is any hope, the hope can only come from the judge himself. We're all gonna stand before him. Yes, pagans and Presbyterians, And so we close with the last point this morning, which is the hope of judgment. Why this passage can be good news is for the hope of judgment. There's a hint of it back in verse 16. We saw it at the high point of speaking about God's wrath. It speaks about a cup, a cup in the right hand of God. Now, what is that cup? What is that cup? And where else does it show up? The cup of wine, God speaks about it as being his wrath. He's going to pour out his wrath upon the nations. Well, that cup shows up in a garden. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, there is a righteous man. And he cries out and says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In this verse, we see perfectly just and a perfectly righteous man pray, let this cup, let this cup of your wrath be taken from me. And what's the father say? No, you have to drink. You have to drink. And so he goes from Gethsemane to Golgotha and the cup does not pass from Jesus, the son of God, but instead he drains the cup of God's judgment that is against his people And he drains that judgment, and now the cup lies empty at the foot of the cross. Your cup. My cup. And so how do unrighteous men become righteous so that we, in the face of God's judgment, can have hope and even consider the judgment of God good news even in this life? We put our faith in the righteous one, the only righteous one who took our 
wrath, who drank our cup. And so you find there at the place of God's judgment, at the very place there is good news because you find your protection from that very same judgment. You see, the judgment of God is good news because when God judged his son on your behalf, he drank every last drop there is no more for you, for those that are found in Christ Jesus. And if you find your cup, you find your cup at the foot of the cross, here's what it leads to. Perhaps the hush of adoration. The quiet that we see at verse 20, an unbearable gratitude that one would drink my cup. And we were brought not only to an hushed and awed worship, but we will be a people who hope in the good news of God's judgment. And so we will work like these Sophie skulls with courage and quiet hopefulness and we will go into the darkest places of this world to bring the message of God's justice. And here's what we'll whisper. The king is coming. Praise be to God. Let's go to the Lord's table. If you're serving at the table, you can come up while I pray. Both worship leaders, sound people, if they can get here, those who are serving. Let's pray and set aside these elements. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are going to take up the broken body. And we're going to take up a cup of our own this morning. And so, Lord, I, I, I pray that as we come to do this in remembrance of what Jesus did for us, I pray that we would come with sober souls. Sober as we come to the table. That we would come silent and awed at what you have done. And so, Lord, in a world in which we, our, our news channels are just, it's difficult. There's just evil on all sides. And then we, we, we see our own self. And we see the things that we are involved in, the, the evil of our thoughts, the hate within us, the anger and the bitterness that pervades within us the selfishness. And Lord, it, it, it ought to bring us to silence before you. But Lord, even as we come in silence, we'll become in awe. And may we receive your grace that our sin this morning would appear great, but as we take the bread and the cup, may your grace be greater to us. And as we set aside the simple bread and the simple cup to remember what it cost for us to receive the righteousness of Christ and to be welcome in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.